Good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn along with me to the book of Titus. Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 2. Last week, we focused in on the men and masculine maturity. Gentlemen, you can be glad we're moving on to feminine faithfulness today. Feminine faithfulness from Titus chapter 2. History tells us that there was a movement to liberate women from the more traditional constraints of society. To give women greater freedom so that they could have a greater role in the public square and be freed from the stifling limitations of the home. With this movement toward greater freedom also came a movement away from traditional morality and a move toward expressions of greater moral and sexual freedom. Women were encouraged to party just as hard as the men did to have many sexual partners and to be completely free in their sexual pursuits. Now you may be thinking I'm talking about the period of time in the 1960s and 70s and the rise of feminism and the women's liberation movement, but I'm not. I'm talking about what began around the year 44 B.C., and the rise of the new Roman woman. The new Roman woman movement occurred throughout the Roman Empire. Throughout the empire, women were deserting their traditional roles in the home, binging on both wine and free sexual expression, attending dinner parties and after parties which were known for their drunkenness and sexual immorality. The days of traditional Roman morality were viewed as old-fashioned and obsolete The wine was free-flowing and the cultural party had only just begun. It is into this setting, this historical situation, that Paul writes to Titus on the Isle of Crete. This new cultural moment of heavy drinking and sexually liberated new Roman women had made its way to Crete where it found a very welcome reception. And it was having a devastating effect upon the Christian community, upon the Christian family, and upon the Christian home. In fact, Paul writes Titus in chapter 1 and verse 11, and he says that these and other false teachings were being taught from the pulpits and in the homes and that they were upsetting whole families. 
It is in this situation that Paul writes what he does. In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, as he addresses yet another segment of the Christian congregation, having begun and targeted older men, in verse 2 of Titus 2, in verses 3 through 5, he speaks to older women and younger women. So let me read for us Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its relevance. We think we're living in completely unique times, and we are not. There's nothing new under the sun, as your word says, and so it is true in this situation as well. Lord, we have need of hearing from you and your design for the home, for the family, for older men, for older women and young women alike. Reorder us in our thinking. Help us to be no longer conformed to the pattern of the world around us, but transformed by the renewing of our mind that comes through your word and by your spirit. Lord, show us where we have picked up the barnacles of the culture around us as we have been at sea in the tumultuous waters that are everywhere. Show us, Lord, where those things are in conflict with your word and help us to scrape them from our lives. Help us to think new thoughts today after you. To think about the home and the family and the role of women in a way that brings you honor and glory and that is in accord with your design. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to see two gospel-centered descriptions of feminine faithfulness. Two gospel-centered descriptions of feminine faithfulness. First of all, feminine faithfulness for older women and feminine faithfulness for younger women. You'll notice again this week that I am emphasizing the fact that these qualities are gospel-centered. They spring forth from the gospel. They're centered around the gospel. We're not calling men, older men, or women, older women, or younger women to moralism to be good little boys and girls for the sake of being good little boys and girls. It's a call that issues forth from the gospel itself. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world and to save us from the penalty of our sins and the guilt of our sins and the judgment that our sins deserve by a holy God. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness throughout his life. 
He satisfied the wrath of God on the cross as a perfect sinless substitute and now offers forgiveness, eternal life, and salvation to all who will receive it by faith alone in Jesus alone and his finished work. That's the good news of the gospel. But part of the truth of the gospel is that there are changes that come to our life as a result. The gospel tells us that we can be born again born from above, born anew, so that the Lord gives us a new heart with new desires, new loves, new hatreds. And over the course of time, we become transformed. We become new creation, a new creature created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's part of the gospel message too. The gospel has implications for living. We're not only saved from God's wrath, but we're saved to a new life, a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of relating to one another. So these are calls to a new way of living, but they are calls not to moralism, but calls back to the implications of the gospel itself. Again, look with me at the end of this section in which Paul gives instruction about older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and household servants. And he finishes his instructions to each of these different groups within the body of Christ in verse 10. And he ties all of this instruction very closely to gospel realities. He says, we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect, in every circumstance, in every position we find ourselves in we're to adorn the doctrine of God adorn the gospel of God adorn the realities of the gospel in our life in every circumstance in every respect and then he goes on he says in verse 11 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men it appeared in Jesus Christ it has come to us and shown us God's grace and mercy in offering to sinners a way of forgiveness, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to what? Deny ungodliness. The gospel, God's grace that has appeared to us, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. God is continuing to do a work in us, even after we're saved, to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ, to make us more righteous, to make our lives more glorifying to him. So, all of these characteristics that I'm going to be showing, sharing with you today flow from gospel truth and they are gospel implications. They are fueled by the power of the gospel and motivated by the gospel. So the first description is four gospel-centered descriptions of feminine faithfulness for older women. So we're going to deal with older women first and then younger women. I'm sorry if I pointed to you as older women over here. We are not segregated that way. It's just how I preach. But you're welcome for me referring to you as younger women. 
So, Paul begins in verse 3, addressing these older women. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women likewise. Just as the older men, in verse 2, needed and deserved some instruction and pastoral attention about their role, about who they were supposed to be in light of the gospel, so these older women deserve the same kind of pastoral instruction and exhortation. So older women likewise have gospel implications for their lives. Now, who are these older women? Well, again, it's good to remind ourselves that the average lifespan in the time that the New Testament was written was between 25 and 30 years of age. And of course, infant mortality rates were significantly higher then, and that certainly impacts that average lifespan figure. But the reality was that not very many people made it into their 40s and 50s. Malnutrition, disease, dangers of all kinds took people out early. So older women here probably has women in their late 30s and early 40s in mind and older. Given the older woman's call to instruct the younger women in the care of their families, these older women likely were old enough to have grown children themselves. So they've already raised their children, which would put them in the early to mid-30s, as the average age of marriage for a young woman was in their mid to late teens. And then children usually came relatively quickly after that. So these older women are likely in their mid to late 30s or early 40s and older. The point is, these older women are to be mentor women. Mentoring the younger generation showing them the path, showing them the way. Exemplary women who have been there and done that and got the t-shirt in terms of living life and in terms of marriage and bringing up children. So what then does a godly older woman look like? Paul shares four descriptions here. Again, dealing with the older women first. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior. This term probably functions like an umbrella term, summarizing well the life of an older woman, an older godly Christian woman. She's reverent in her behavior. Their life is to be marked by reverent behavior. What does that mean? The term reverent means respectful in the sense that others respect you. Your life is venerable. It's esteemed. It's revered by others and respected by others. The older women, in all their conduct and actions, are to live their life in such a way that it gains the respect of those who are watching, those who are looking on. Other Christian women want to be like these women. Their life is worthy of emulation. And that should be every Christian woman's desire. In fact, it's every Christian's desire that we would be good examples of what it means to be a follower of Christ, whether we're an older man or an older woman or a younger man or a younger woman. We want to be exemplary. And that should be every 
Christian's desire, and it should be every Christian woman's desire, that other women would find something in their life that is worthy of imitation, worthy of learning from, that other women could follow you as you follow Jesus Christ in your various roles and responsibilities. To be reverent in your behavior is to be a godly woman, in short. Paul then gives some very specific examples of what reverent behavior looks like practically. They're not malicious gossips. The Greek term Paul uses here for malicious gossips is diabolos. Does that sound familiar? Not devils in their speech. Same word that's used of Satan, the devil, who is the great accuser, the great slanderer of the brethren. And so slander is the main idea here. To slander is to speak evil of someone, to accuse them falsely, to speak against them maliciously. Godly women are not to slander with their speech. Instead, they are careful with their speech. They do not go around speaking evil of others, telling tales and spreading lies. Listen, the temptation for men and women alike is to use our speech in ways that do not glorify God. The tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity, James says. It's tempting when we get together with others to want to dish out the gossip and spill the tea. There's always someone, it seems, who's willing to listen. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a whisperer are like dainty or delicious morsels, and they go down into the stomach. They're tasty. We like to hear the inside scoop, and it's tantalizing to hear the failures of others or the problems that others are having. But the godly woman is not a slanderer. Paul wrote similar instructions to Timothy in Ephesus about the importance of guarding our speech. For there, a certain group of Christian women were not being careful with their speech. 1 Timothy 5.13 says, At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Idleness brought with it the temptation to gossip and slander and malign and tell tales. Instead of slander, which always tears others down, our speech, Christian speech, is to be used to build others up. Ephesians 4.29 through 32 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Our speech is to give grace. Gracious speech. And then Paul says this, 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our speech can grieve the Holy Spirit. Our speech has an impact upon, has an effect upon the Spirit of God. Grieving Him, potentially. And so, Paul continues in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, same word, be put away with you, from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God also has forgiven you in Christ. Christian speech is to be unique, different speech from the world. Not characterized by slander and gossip and backbiting. But distinctively Christian. Grace giving. Building up the one who hears it. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Put sentries over my mouth. Guard my mouth, Lord, because I know this thing is a monster if I let it roam freely. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Some of us need to have closing time on our mouths. Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Proverbs 10.19 talks about the dangers of many words. It says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. What's your word count in a day? You ever think about that? When it comes to our speech, sometimes less is more. God has given us our mouths. He's given us our tongues. He's given us our voices and the very breath in our lungs as gifts from His good hand. And we should use them for far better purposes than slander and gossip. We should use our voices for better things to build others up and point them to Jesus consistently. So, a mark of a godly woman, a reverent woman, is not being a malicious gossip. Then they are not enslaved to much wine. Paul here moves from our speech to our appetites. And specifically to the issue of not being enslaved to much wine. Cretans were known for their gluttony, and that certainly included wine and other forms of alcohol. Cretans, Paul says, are lazy gluttons and evil beasts. They act beastly. They give themselves over to their animalistic desires. And it's clear here that this reputation was not limited solely to men. Women, too, face the temptation of drinking too much wine and even finding themselves enslaved at times to wine. For some Cretan women, wine had become their master. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the danger of being mastered by anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. If we can apply that to this situation, wine is lawful for me, but I'm not going to be mastered by it. I'm not going to become its slave. And with enslavement to wine in this culture came drunkenness, and with drunkenness often came immorality. It was a straight line from drunkenness to immorality oftentimes. So Paul writes to the Romans. In Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. There's a direct line between drunkenness and promiscuity. While wine and other forms of alcohol are absolutely permissible for the Christian and can be enjoyed without guilt, they are good gifts from the Lord, the abuse of these things, drunkenness and enslavement to alcohol, is never permissible for the Christian. And it is always sin. So, ladies... If you find yourself longing throughout the day for the time when it is finally wine o'clock, you may want to consider whether wine has come to have too big a place in your life. Can you live without it? Is it profitable for you? Has it become your master? godly woman will not be known as being a slave to too much wine. And then finally, these older women are known for teaching what is good. These exemplary older women are known for teaching what is good. Paul uses a composite word here, combining the words good and teaching together into a single term, probably coining the term, Instead of being a bad example by their conduct and their speech, their life is to be given to modeling and teaching what is good. They're not to be an example of what not to do. They're to be an example of what you should do as a Christian woman. What Paul is calling for here is a ministry of discipleship between older women and younger women. Teaching the Younger women, what is good? There's a vital need for women teachers in the church. Did you know that? We need women teachers. Teachers of women who model what godly womanhood looks like. Women teaching women, older women teaching younger women. There is no end to the opportunities for this both in large settings, smaller settings, and one-on-one. Nor is this ministry limited to those women who have the gift of teaching. For this kind of teaching what is good does not require standing up and opening the Scriptures and teaching forth, though it might include that, but includes so much more than that. It includes simply modeling what it looks like 
to live life as a godly woman, as a godly wife, and a godly mother. So Paul instructs the older women to be godly women, worthy of respect, be, by being careful with their speech, by being careful with their appetites, by being teachers and models and examples of what is good. And now as he pivots toward the younger women, he's going to share what this good actually looks like. What the older women are to be teaching the younger women to do and to be. All right, so that brings us to the second main point today, and that is seven gospel-centered descriptions of feminine faithfulness in young women. And now the older women breathe a sigh of relief, and they're like, oh, that wasn't too bad. I don't even drink wine. (laughs) Well, hang on. There's more for you here, older ladies and younger ladies. Now, when Paul says these things should be taught to younger women, let's just look at that. Verse 4, sorry, the end of verse 3, teaching what is good, verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women. So that they may encourage the young women. Now, these descriptions that Paul is going to lay out here do not just apply to the younger women, but they apply to the older women as well. The assumption is that the older women are already doing these things in an exemplary fashion. He's not calling for hypocritical teachers to say, do as I say, not as I do. He's calling on these older women who presumably at this point in their life have already matured to a certain point and they are already walking consistently in this way, not perfectly, but already walking with consistency in these areas. So each of these also applies to older women. In teaching them here what is good, Paul says in verse 4 that these older women are to encourage the younger women toward these different aspects of faithfulness. The word encourage here could be translated urge. Encourage sounds too light for what the word actually means. It means to urge. As if to wake someone up by giving them a good shaking. It means more accurately to bring these young women to their senses. Call them to wake up to the realities of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. To bring them to their senses. You see, these younger women had imbibed too much of the pagan culture around them and their lives were giving evidence of it. Their homes were giving evidence of it. The relationship they had with their husbands and their children was giving evidence of it. They needed to be brought to their senses in several different areas. These younger women were to be taught and urged by these older women. Which means that these younger women were to look to these older women as their teachers, their examples, and their mentors. Their disciplers. This is a word we need to hear. Too often, 
seems to me that our younger women are getting instruction from and finding examples in their peers instead of from older women. And oftentimes, this instruction and example that they're getting from their peers are from people they've never even met. Younger Christian women are too often seeking marriage advice or parenting instruction from Instagram and TikTok influencers instead of from real life, on the ground, examples of godly women in their own church. Why seek advice from someone online who probably doesn't share your worldview doesn't share your biblical convictions, doesn't share your faith in or love of Jesus Christ? Why seek marriage advice from someone who is nearly your own age and who hasn't gone through all the ups and downs of decades of marriage? Or why seek parenting advice and counsel from someone near your own age who has yet to fully raise their own kids? You know, go to a dinner with those kids of that influencer and see if you want your kids to be like them. You can observe that in the church. You mean to tell me you're going to follow an influencer's parenting advice just because they wear the right leggings, do their makeup flawlessly, and have 100,000 followers, and therefore they're the expert? The Lord has provided you, young ladies, with a wealth of real-world, time-tested knowledge and wisdom right around you, right here, in this very room, in this very church, if you will seek it out and learn from it. Instruction for the older women to teach the younger women implies a willingness on the younger women's part to want to learn from the older women within the church. Something that younger women should take to heart. And that older women should step forward and be ready to share their lives. So what does it look like for these older women to teach the younger women? What are they... What does the instruction manual look like? Chapter one, love your husband. Love your husband. Now, not all younger women will be married or have a husband. Not all older women will be married or have a husband. Marriage is not always God's will or plan for women or for men. To be single is not a curse from God. In fact, Paul says elsewhere that it is a great good and a gift from the Lord, singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain single even as I am. Singleness is good because it affords opportunities for devoted and undistracted ministry that are not possible for the married person. 1 Corinthians 7, 32-34 makes that clear. That the married person is concerned about the things of the world. The woman who is unmarried is 
concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And so there's a sense in which marriage is a great distraction from greater things. And yet marriage too is a gift from the Lord. For those young women who are married, they need to be taught how to love their husbands. God's design from the beginning was for one man and one woman to be united together in marriage for life. Our culture has forgotten that, sadly. And it is going to result in disaster. Jesus clearly affirmed this in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. I want you to turn with Matthew 19 with me. All right, if you don't, if you don't know where to turn to talk to people about an issue like this, Matthew 19 is the spot. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Jesus is speaking. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Have you not read, Jesus says, that he who created them, God who created them, from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting right from Genesis here. The very beginning of the Bible, where it all began. And then Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Here we have, in Jesus' words, something that clears up all the confusion that's going on in our society currently about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, about what marriage is, about what marriage is intended to be, about how long marriage is to last, who marriage is to be between. Our culture has taken God's good gift of marriage and twisted it to mean whatever they want it to mean. And so we have the legalization of so-called same-sex marriage. But this is not what Jesus affirmed, and it's not what the Bible teaches. And so now, more than ever, young women need to learn from older women how to love their husbands. There is not new information here to be gleaned from our culture. There is old information to be learned and observed from those who have gone before us and who have walked a little bit further along in this life than we have. Younger women need to learn from older women what it means to love their husbands, what it means to have loving affection for your husband, how to love your husband well. There was a book that came out years ago called The Proper Care and Feeding of Husbands. I don't recommend that book, but the title kind of gets to it. And older women have a lot to offer in teaching the younger women how to love their husbands. Next, how to love their children. How to love their children. They need to know not only how to love their husbands, but how to love their children. Now, mothers loving their children certainly comes more naturally, oftentimes more naturally than loving husbands. 
fact, some women may struggle to love their husbands when they never struggle to love their children. And yet there is a stark reality that some mothers do not love their children. You say, what mothers don't love their children? Well, one need only look no further than the horrid statistics on abortion in this country. Mothers hating their children. Murdering their children. In the name of personal freedom and choice. Yes, children come along and they require sacrifice. Sacrifice on the part of the mother, on part of the father. But that's what you do when you love your children. You sacrifice yourself, your plans, your dreams. Younger women need to learn from older women how to love their children. It's true that in most cases there is no greater influence in the life of a person than their mother. With fathers is a close second. But let's face it, dads, right? Dads, right? Right? When when at the Super Bowl guy scores a touchdown and he puts his face in front of the camera he doesn't say hi dad he says hi mom which tells you what he owes all of his life to and that's why the old as the old saying goes the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world in most cases the individual who spends the most time with their children and therefore the most formation into their children's lives is the mother. Moms, it's not Mother's Day, but it's coming. You are so important. You are irreplaceable in the life of your child. You are vital to the health and well-being and development of your children and therefore to the future of our society. But the Bible teaches us here that you need help in this task. You need older, godly women in your life helping you think through what it means to mother well, to love your children well. And part of learning to love your children well is learning to discipline your children faithfully. You're not loving your children well if you're not disciplining them faithfully. And that includes, at times, spanking them for disobedience. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You don't hate your kid. I know that. But at times, we've chosen the world's methods over the Lord's. There's a popular brand of parenting going around right now called gentle parenting. And that, of course, sounds good. I mean, we all want to be gentle parents, right? No one wants to 
be in a rage or angry parents or something like that. But when you see that this gentle parenting forbids any kind of corporal discipline, when the Bible clearly teaches that that is a tool of parenting that should be employed from time to time, that the rod of discipline should be applied to the seat of education (laughs) occasionally, when you see that these other forms of parenting outlaw that, you say it's not biblical. It's got to be rejected. So that's part of learning to love your child well, is learning how to discipline faithfully, biblically, consistently. Young women, find an older godly woman here in the church who has grown children, who love the Lord, and are living obedient, productive lives, and learn everything you can possibly learn about parenting from them, and leave the influencers to choose your wardrobe, not how you parent your child. C, sensible. We've seen this before. This is self-control. To live a sensible life is to live a life of prudence, of thoughtful intentionality, exercising self-control over your desires and your impulses. It's the same trait that was prescribed for older men in verse 3. And because older women are to teach younger women to be sensible, it means that the older women must themselves first be sensible, self-controlled, measured restraint in all things, a life of steady level-headedness, a life of discretion and prudence, a life of self-control. And it comes as a direct result of the work of the gospel in our lives. Paul mentions sensibility in Titus 2 in verse 12. Look back with me at Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Again, anchoring all of this truth in the gospel, the implications of the gospel, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. To live sensibly in a self-controlled way. Older women, are you sensible? Are you self-controlled? Younger women, look to the older women to help you grow in this area. Next, purity, to be pure. Here Paul is referring to the issue of feminine chastity. It's to demonstrate a life of both moral and legal innocence, a life of theological and ethical excellence. Purity of thought, purity of behavior, purity of faith. To be a pure person. John will say in his little letter of 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. One day we're going to be made pure, perfectly pure. For we will see him as he is. We'll be like him. But until that time... We purify ourselves just as he is pure. Then workers at home. Literally, this means busy at home. 
Younger women need to learn to be busy at home. It means being a good manager of the household. It means investing in and caring about the, how the home life is going. It means that the home life is not an afterthought, but it's a priority thought. Home life is to be equally important to husbands. Not like the husbands get off here. Just, you know, doesn't matter what the husband does. For Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that elders must be those who manage their households well. To be busy at home doesn't mean that the woman can't have a life outside the home, to be sure. To be busy at home doesn't mean that she is somehow chained to the household or chained to the kitchen. It doesn't mean that she can't pursue a career outside the home. But it does mean that her home life is her chief concern. That everything else she does is done in support of home. It means that her husband and her children are her life's top priorities. Think of the Proverbs 31 woman. She was a woman of business. She was busy at home. Don't misunderstand me. But she had pursuits outside the home. And she was busy with them. She was a woman of business. Proverbs 31.16 says, She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. So she's accumulating real estate. She's doing real estate deals. From that field, she buys, she plants a vineyard. And now she's going to make wine and sell it, presumably, or sell the grapes as a vintner. Proverbs 31.24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. So she's a clothing magnate. She's in the fashion industry. But then Proverbs 31.27 makes clear, she looks well to the ways of her household and she does not eat the bread of idleness. She does not do any of that in neglect of her top priority which is loving her husband well and loving her children well. Next we see that she is virtuous. The word is kind, translated as kind in most versions. And that's an okay translation but probably the idea here is closer to being good and doing good living a virtuous life to excel in virtue and good deeds and again when you remember what the context was what the setting was how this new Roman woman movement was sweeping through the empire how women were getting drunk like sailors and speaking like sailors and cavorting like sailors Paul says, listen, young women, learn from the older women how to be virtuous. Live a life of good. And then they need to be submissive to their own husband. It means to arrange yourself under the authority of another. Submission. 
And of course, this marital submission has limits, just like all human relationships of authority and submission have limits. If a husband asks a wife to sin or to go against her conscience, she is not required to submit in those cases, for she must obey God rather than men. And yet here too, younger women need good godly examples that are to be found in the older women and the church who have walked the path of faithfulness and loved their husbands well. Now all of this is done so that the word of God will not be dishonored. That's what Paul says. The end of verse 5. The word of God is often synonymous with the gospel itself, which is how I think it's being used here. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is dishonored when believers fail to live consistently with the gospel. The gospel is dishonored when older women live lives not worth emulating, when they are busy about slandering others, and when they live lives of drunkenness and wantonness and fail to pass on to the next generation what it looks like to live a life of good deeds for the glory of God. Likewise, the gospel is dishonored when younger women fail to learn from older women and they fail to love their husbands well and fail to love their children well when they lack self-control and live lives of impurity neglecting the home when young women fail to live lives of virtue or refuse to submit to their own husbands the word of God is dishonored and the gospel ceases to be the compelling message of salvation and life change that it was intended to be make no mistake about it Older women, younger women. Nothing less than the reputation of the gospel is on the line here. Listen to the words of Matthew 5.16, the words of Jesus. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Younger women, utilize the resources that God has blessed you with in this room. Older women, make yourself available and never stop growing in Christ's likeness. Let's pray together. Lord, so much here for us to ingest and take in and dwell on, receive by faith and believe. Help us to do that. Where we struggle to not understand or have questions, may we seek out someone to help us understand these things better. May older women in our church be models of godly living. May younger women seek out those models and pattern their own lives after older women who are following Christ. This is your model for us, Lord. This is the pattern. This is your instruction to us. We believe it and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.